Well, hello. We're here with the eighth episode of the R&D 100 podcast, and it is really great to have you join us once again for a chat about some incredible technology and uh, just how it came to be. I'm Paul Heaney, VP Editorial Director of R&D World Magazine, and it is always a better day for me personally when I get to spend part of it, uh, I guess even if only virtually, with the the dynamic and funny and brilliant Amy Kilnaskis, our senior editor. Thanks so much for coming back uh, again, Amy. And I'm not even kicking and screaming, Paul, especially after that (laughs) intro. Hey, I'm getting used to this whole podcast dynamic. And usually we're a lot sillier together in person. So maybe on the whole, it's better to be separated by what most of the continental United States landmass. It might be. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably for the best, Paul, as far as our dear listeners are concerned, at least. And yes, as Paul said, I'm Amy Kalnaskis. R&D World Senior Editor on Podcast Duty once again. So we don't do these podcasts on a super regular basis, so I found it a little mind-blowing for me, Amy, that we are already on the eighth one, no? I'm pretty amazed by that too. I had to reread this a couple of times, but I always try to keep in mind (laughs) that we may have brand new first-time listeners with us, right? Sure. yeah. Yeah, I feel like I should explain how this podcast works a little then. Well, I mean, that's assuming we haven't already lost them in what, you know, our first 60 or 70 seconds. <laughs> Time flies. Ha! Well, I'm confident that we haven't, what with our witty repartee. So this is a podcast where Paul and I examine both exciting technology and the science of innovation. How did that tech come to be? So each episode looks at the genesis of a specific past R&D 100 award winner. I think that's a pretty good summation, Amy. And, you know, actually, for those of you who don't know what the R&D 100 awards are, I mean, I'm not sure how you stumbled on this podcast then, but, you know, the the R&D 100 awards have been going on for six decades, which is pretty incredible. We are in the myth of the myth, midst, midst, I can't talk, Amy. We're in the midst of our our 60th anniversary uh, year uh, for the R&D 100 awards. if you haven't entered, uh, I'm sorry to say you're too late. We've already uh, closed the uh, submission process. We're in the judging phase. And uh, the announcements are scheduled for tentatively, with a, you know, definitely tentatively. Um, August 15th is when we hope to announce our finalists. And then August 22nd, a week later, that is when we would announce our winners, as well as we have kind of a side thing called Special Recognition Award winners uh, with uh, five different categories. We announced those uh, the winners, there's no finalists there, on mm-hmm. August 22nd. Okay. And then we are really, really hopeful that uh, we're going to get back together in person this fall for the, the big gala awards banquet dinner. Um, and that is already s- scheduled for November 17th in uh, sunny San Diego. So uh, Amy and I will be there with, uh, with bells on. Yeah, let's, let's keep crossing our fingers on that one because... Uh... Who knows, right? But that's that's where we're headed. We hope so anyway. Um, yeah, we're looking forward to all of that, Paul, and I hope you all are too. And um, yeah, let, I think we should get started. But hey, Paul, I think you have a little trip coming up to Greece. And- I do, I do. Yeah. Pretty exciting. Yeah, hopefully yeah. The, everything uh, goes well with the airlines and the airports and the cruise line. And, you know, fingers crossed, we don't get a positive COVID test the day before we get on the ship. So that's always a little 
a little extra uh, worry to put in the back of your mind. But yeah, yeah. and you just got back from Europe yourself, Amy. And yeah, I think, yeah, uh, that was that was uh, it was great celebrating my 60th with some family members. And very nice. um, I saw some pictures and it looked fantastic. Yeah, Ireland and my daughter got engaged to amazing, very, amazing. Yeah, idyllic place in Ireland, although it's all pretty idyllic. Um, yeah, it was terrific. Uh, you know, there were a couple things that kind of uh, we weren't expecting, but Maybe all of you should put in your back pocket when you're going to travel. Yeah. I got sick. My future son-in-law got COVID, tested the day positive the day before he was to leave. Crazy. My nephew got COVID. <laughs> but, you know, we, we were in a beautiful place to have COVID and we're all fine. And, yeah. you know, yeah, um, it's kind of interesting, though, Paul, because a little birdie told me that today's podcast has something to do with COVID-19 and, you know. No, well, I'm 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 ninety nine point nine 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 eight percent sure that that little birdie was me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it and, was. And I kind of feel like maybe we shouldn't talk about little birdies too close in proximity to COVID and pandemic stuff. Or I feel like some sort of bird flu, some new variant of bird flu will probably spontaneous spontaneously just generate itself, and then you know, Amy, you and I are going to be to blame. Yeah, and, and we have such a force of nature to do that, right, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> and given the state of the world now, you're probably right. I don't want to be pariahs. So let's just jump into it then. Let's. That sounds sounds great to me. Okay. So today's podcast is about SimSip, which is Sertara's COVID-19 vaccine model. And this one won an R&D 100 award last year, you probably remember, in 2021. Yes, I do remember that one. Um doesn't it basically let researchers run a vaccine through what, like a virtual population of people to mm -hmm. see how it functions, right? Different ages of people even? Yep, you've got the one. Um, and it got a lot of publicity for sure. And I know a lot of people were really interested in it. It, yeah. uh, it uses biosimulation to essentially generate, it's, it's so cool, a virtual population. And, wow. and Amy, you're right, you know, on the different ages things, it can uh, simulate that. But it can mm -hmm. also simulate all sorts of other things, whether it be gender or weight or you know the person's genetics or um, diet what their current illnesses are i mean even other medications that people may be taking already it's really mind-blowing wow so so paul it's like almost like creating a virtual clinic clinical trials right or at least that's how i remember thinking of it well i, I think that's a that's a good way to to sum it up okay um and these you know virtual trials can be conducted um using actual patient data and then virtual patient data, but much faster and at a, you know, clearly at a much lower cost than you know, your, your average live clinical study. Huh. Um, and as a result, the model can be used to, to streamline things, to optimize, and, and sometimes it can even replace those clinical studies you know, totally. Um, the model also allows virtual COVID-19 vaccine trials to can be conducted that, you know, may be either impractical or even unethical to perform with real participants. Okay, this is not just very cool, but what was what was the expression used? It was it's mind blowing. So I, I need to get more. <laughs> so here is uh, Pete Vandergraaff, who is senior vice president and head of quantitative systems pharmacology. Say that fast. No. At Sertara, describing the immunogenicity consortium that they helped to form several years ago. Uh, so this was formed in 2017, so now it's in its uh, sixth year. 
But the consortium was established by Satara with uh, seven major pharma companies who were all interested to develop a biosimulation tool that can predict the undesired immune response to administration of a biological therapeutic such as monoclonal antibody. And this immune response is referred to as immunogenicity or Ig. And it's a real challenge because it generates antibodies known as ADAs that lower the exposure of a drug and therefore reduces the therapeutic benefit for the patients. And, and this is a very significant issue in the development of biologics. For example, the, the US uh, Food, Food and Drug Administration, FDA, published a recent review um, of some 120 approved biological products uh, and found that almost 90% of these drugs had reported Ig, and that the therapeutic response was negatively impacted in almost half of the cases. So the output of the consortium is a biosimulation software platform called the Ig Simulator, and we have recently released version five. And the tool has now been validated with over 20 clinical case studies provided by our consortium members from the and from the literature. And recently, the FDA obtained a license for our Ig Simulator which I suppose demonstrates the interest of regulatory agencies in this area. Now, Pete said that the IG simulator was the basis for the development of their vaccine simulator, which they started to work on at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, got it. And, and what's Pete's role here? Do you have any background on how he got involved in this sort of research, Paul? Uh, yeah, he, uh, he told me that you know when he was a kid, he always kind of wanted to play doctor. But then once he got you know, a little more advanced into high school and so forth, he was pretty fascinated by like the interplay between medicine and chemistry and then mathematical and computer modeling. So at that point, he kind of decided to pivot and study pharmacy. Oh, wow. And, and as they say in Ireland, cool shite. <laughs> that happens when you get into the interplay between multiple disciplines, as we learn so often, I think in every single podcast. I, I think we do. Every episode, it's there. Um, it, it's certainly, I think we've seen too, a, a recurring theme in the R&D 100 winners overall. Um, but back to Pete. So he went to college in Sweden for something called chemometrics, which I hadn't heard of before. But yeah, apparently it's the application of data science to understand the properties of chemical structures using different techniques, which I guess we now call like machine learning and AI. Okay. And then from there, he met a Nobel Prize winner, but I will let him tell that part, which I think is also pretty cool. Mm. Now, I was then very fortunate to get a PhD position at King's College London with Sir James Black, who had just won the Nobel Prize for medicine. And is, I suppose, widely considered as one of the most successful drug discoverers of all time. Now, he taught me how to apply mathematical modeling to understand the, pharm the pharmacological behavior of chemical compounds and, and how this can be applied to guide discovery and development of drugs. Now, he called this approach analytical pharmacology, but nowadays it's referred to as systems pharmacology or pharmacometrics. Uh, in a similar way to the discipline, the name of chemometrics that I mentioned earlier. So I then spent some 15 years at, at Pfizer, um, really using these principles and methods in actual drug discovery and development across a wide range of therapeutic areas. And actually, this was the first seat 
for our SimSip COVID-19 vaccine model. And, and that was really planted in these years, as I'll explain later. So after Pfizer, uh, I, I became a, I went to Leiden University as a, a professor of pharmacology uh, and the director of research of the Leiden Academic Center for Drug Research. And I, become, I became involved in the setup of a small company called Xenologic, which specialized in the application of mechanistic mathematical modeling in drug discovery. And in 2015, Xenologic joins the SimSip division of Satara to form the so-called quantitative system pharmacology or QSP team, which I now head up. Okay, and what was the genesis of the SimSip model that they developed? Well, interestingly, it wasn't like this super sexy start, <laughs> Pete told me. Um, it was not terribly successful at first, and, and really there wasn't a ton of interest in the concept. Mm -hmm. uh, Pete said that the COVID pandemic changed everything, though. Here he is. The first seed of this was planted when I was at Pfizer in, in Sandwich in the UK some 15 years ago. Um, so we had just started a new group with the remit to apply biosimulation at earlier stages of drug discovery and development, which was a fairly new concept in, in those days. Now, the Sandwich site has just started to work on vaccines. So we tried to persuade our colleagues in that group to work with us on the development of biosimulation models to help translate preclinical data to clinical predictions, for example, to guide dose selections for vaccines. Now, to be honest, we were not very successful and our colleagues showed very little interest, <laughs> which I suppose was a uh, was not uncommon uh, in the field of uh, you know vaccines because the, the the application of model informed approaches that have been used widely in most areas of you know drug development were not really embraced by vaccine researchers until very recently and COVID has changed that of course as you will find out later so anyway the vaccine research group that moved from Sandwich to the Pfizer sites in California and my colleague. Paolo Ficini took over. Now, I suppose he also didn't get much traction with our vaccine model there, um, but he rather ingeniously pivoted the idea towards immunogenicity, which we talked about earlier. So basically, immunogenicity is the undesired immune response of the human body to a foreign protein, whereas for vaccines, that response is actually the desired response. You really want the immune system to generate antibodies that will subsequently recognize a virus and therefore protect you from an infection. Now, Paolo and Pfizer colleagues published their immunogenicity model in 2013 in, in the journal Pharmacometrics and System Pharmacology, of which I was the editor-in-chief at that time. Now, this work was the basis for the formation of the Immunogenicity Consortium in 2017 that we talked about earlier of which Pfizer was in fact one of the founding members. Now, fast forward to the beginning of 2020, when the COVID pandemic was spreading across the world and we were all in lockdown. Now, we were asked the same question as almost every biomedical researcher at the time. What are you going to do to help us out of this crisis? Now, initially, we thought there was not that much we had to offer since our QSP team at Citara had never worked on vaccines or even infectious diseases. Now, then at some point in the spring of 2020, the penny dropped. And when I recalled the history of our IG simulator, 
which, as I mentioned, actually started as an idea for vaccines originally, we realized we may have been sitting on a tool that could be repurposed quickly to apply in COVID vaccine development. So basically, we did an in silico experiment, and we put the sequence of the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus into our IG simulator and watched what happened. Now, you can imagine how excited we were but in this first simulation, the model indeed did predict the production of antibodies against the spike protein, mimicking short and long-term immune response from what you would expect from a vaccine. So this was around June 2020. And from there on, we decided to throw the kitchen sink at the development of what is now known as the Simpson COVID-19 vaccine simulator. Initially at our own risk, since we did not yet have a client to work with us or any other external funding. I also asked Pete to talk just a little bit about the development process, as well as the evolution of the, the product's design. So here he is again. Yeah, so as I explained, we already had a lot of the required fundamental elements in place through the development of the IG simulator, which we already have been working on and developing in our consortium for some four years by the time we started working on vaccines. So the way we you know, developed such biosimulation platform means we could add the specific features that, you, that, are, you know, that were needed for vaccines, such as administration of lipid nanoparticles in a modular manner. Now, because clinical data on new vaccines was being published almost real time, and particularly from Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, we could calibrate and update and validate the model on an ongoing basis. So in the fall of 2020, we started to work with a company on an actual COVID mRNA vaccine program, in particular to help them decide on the optimal dose and dosing interval. Now, the results of our simulations were indeed key to the, to the design of the first in human trial, and submitted to regulatory agencies in December 2020. So COVID broke many records, of course, and most likely also the one for the fastest development of a biosimulation platform from idea to regulatory submission in less than six months. So then last year, we expanded the application of our platform to, uh, from, from RNA COVID vaccines to other vaccine types, such as viral vector vaccines and we have been working very closely with example for, for uh, with uh, astrazeneca on their uh, on their program now this of course has given us access to even more data and the model continues to be developed all the time in what we call a learn and confirm manner so based on what we or what we know now we make uh, you know actual simulations and predictions of scenarios that have not, not yet been tested for example, the requirement for and timing of the third and fourth booster, or the possibility to mix different vaccines. Now, once the new data comes out, the model gets updated again, and if needed, uh, and then we uh, continue with our learn and confirm cycle all over again. Pete really sounds like a brilliant fellow, Paul. He, he absolutely was, Amy. Um, it was just, it was so fascinating to be able to chat with him about this kind of stuff. Cool. Well, I'd really like to know more about the variants of COVID. Are they using this now for that kind of work? You know, I, I, I kind of thought the same thing. Um, in principle, their model can also be used to help scientists understand 
you know, how the vaccines may or may not work against variants. But Pete told me um, that really hasn't been the main focus, at least so far. Um, they've mainly been focused on doing like regimen intervals, the requirements for boosters. And, and like, I think he mentioned earlier, the kind of the mixing of vaccines and, and, and what that, what really happens with that. Um, and currently they're looking at, you know, do we need to modify the dosing regimen in special populations? You know, whether that be like very young children or the, the elderly. Hmm. Um, I, and before I forget, I also wanted to share with you just a little clip uh, about what Pete said about the team there at Sertara. And I think you're going to uh, find this interesting, Amy. But this has obviously been a huge team effort. And, and I should first of all mention my brilliant Sertara colleagues, uh, particularly Andre Kierzak, uh, Raja Desikan, Mario Georgi, and Dennis Redihoff, who really have been the, the masterminds behind this. And then there were many, many other people involved from our SimSip division, with expertise ranging from immunology, mathematics, computer science, software development. And of course, we're also very grateful that we had the opportunity to work with you know, the, the vaccine teams from various pharmaceutical companies. Uh, I think one of the main and, and key ingredients for success has been the passion and the desire to make a difference from the people involved. As I mentioned earlier, in the first instance, this started with a simple experiment. And in the early days, we pretty much developed a prototype in our spare time. And it's just inc incredible to work with such motivated and you know, really incredibly talented people at Sitar on a day-to-day -day basis and, and be part of a team that really wants to make a difference to so many people. Yeah. I I almost saw that. Okay, I saw that coming from a mile away, Paul. I mean, I sound like a broken record here, but we just learn over and over again on these podcasts the importance of really diverse teams, whether that's the mm -hmm. traditional definition of diversity, like, you know, using corporate speak, or a diversity of educational backgrounds and fields of study. I mean, you're never going to win something with a team of only computer programmers. I mean, nothing against computer programmers. But, for sure, for sure. But yeah, it's so critical. Absolutely, to have that crossover of technology background. Oh, for sure. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Okay, so were there any big issues that they ran into, roadblocks or what have you? Uh, you know, really, Amy, the, the main one sounds like it was it was sort of a cultural thing from what Pete told me. Hmm. Um, the, just the, in general, the use of biosimulation in vaccine development, I mean, it, it wasn't at all established at all when they started this work. And from what he said, it, it sounded to me like it took quite a bit of, I would say, organizational courage to, uh, to tackle the development of the vaccine simulator because they were really doing something that, that no one else had done before. Uh, Pete said that it would have been very easy to just kind of stay on the fence, but he told me that you know one of the keys to success there was to have a team of people who have a unique mix of passion and talent and expertise. And then on top of that, to provide kind of a purpose-driven environment where Everyone understands that, hey, innovation involves, you know, more than a small element of risk taking. Mm, true, true. But OK, stepping back for a second, something's just occurred to me. Who exactly are Sertara's customers? Is it like government, government agencies, <laughs> pharmaceutical companies, someone else? Yeah, um, I would say to a large extent, their clients are pharmaceutical companies and then organizations, you know, kind of in health and drug development and, and vaccine development. 
So it could be like an AstraZeneca or, or other companies like Astra. Um, they also do a lot of work with the Gates Foundation, but uh, Pete said they haven't yet used the vaccine simulator for any of their programs. Um, and he did mention that the FDA recently got a license for the IG simulator. So um, I would actually say it's, it's quite a mix of stakeholders. Hmm, sounds like it. Well, like with any project, Paul, what about any lessons learned from their experiences here? Yeah, um, Pete said that there were, were a lot, but he did hone in on one interesting one. And then the second part of, of this uh, quote from him, he also tossed out a really, really intriguing possibility for the future. So, so check this out, Amy. I think one of the important lessons relates to the fact that this story of the vaccine simulator started nearly 20 years ago. And I think it emphasizes that innovation comes in waves and sometimes in a very unexpected manner where research strands that maybe initially seems, you know, running in parallel meet. And in my experience, these are the moments where we make step changes and, and, and the way to um, maximize the chance that you, that you have such moments is to be very open-minded and to look for cross-fertilization across disciplines. And that's why I said our teams, you know, come, uh, we have people ranging from mathematics to immunology, uh, engineering, computer science. And I think it's this, you know, somewhat eclectic mix of different disciplines that really stimulates uh, innovation. Now, on a more general note, I think that, you know, the response of biomedical researchers and vaccine developers and regulators to, to the COVID crisis has shown what we are actually capable of when the pressure is really on. And in our case, we showed that innovations in computational modeling and simulation can really disrupt the paradigm of drug developments and, and speed up clinical trials to really kind of meet the needs for uh, um, you know, rapid development of, of, of treatments and cures in the pandemic. Now, I think the lessons that we have learned from COVID in the past couple of years can be applied more widely and should be applied more widely. And, and I really think we can now kind of use these learnings in other area of vaccine development, for example, in other infectious diseases, but actually also in areas like cancer, where we have now also started to use our biosimulation models to drive the development of vaccines for uh, cancer. Holy shit, I mean, shite, cancer vaccines? <laughs> That's some amazing stuff there, Paul. It really is. So I did pick his brain a little more on that because, you know, it was just too incredible to pass up. Yeah. Um, and he said, like, you know, in principle, the vaccine platform is a generic one. So they've already started to use it with other infectious diseases like RSV, which you may or may not be familiar with, but it's, it's like the co most common cause of um, lung inflammation and pneumonia in babies, like, you know, one year or younger hmm. uh, in the U.S. Um, okay. He said that they're they're starting now with you know some of the cancer research and some of the novel technology like the RNA vaccines. Uh, some companies like biotech realized that you know they were sitting on a platform they could repurpose very quickly, um, similar to how Certera realized they had a platform that they could repurpose because of COVID at the beginning of of the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, Pete said it's you know it's really difficult to predict. I you know I, I really wanted to wrestle a date or a a time 
frame out of him, but I couldn't. He's, you know, it's, it's so hard to predict, you know, when we might see it, the first cancer vaccines, you know, when they would come out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he also mentioned, like we've seen the last few years here, what, what companies did in terms of speed of development for vaccines pre and then post COVID has, I mean, just the change has been truly phenomenal. Oh yeah. I mean, I think no one would have ever imagined pre COVID that <laughs> they could develop a vaccine within a year. Um, and we've seen this in the news typically it was more of a, at least a five to 10 year plan. And that was if things went really, really well. So Pete said he's really hopeful, but it's, you know, again, it's difficult to give a precise estimate for when we can expect these type of cancer vaccines to become available, available for, for, you know, for patients, general use. Mm, still, and not to be too repetitive, mind blown. We mind just, blown. Yeah, yeah, we should just call the whole podcast the mind blowing. The podcast. mind blown episode. There we go. Um, and and it, I, man, I, I'd love to have a whole podcast on the topic of cancer vaccines. That would be so interesting. Oh, yeah. I, I had never even honestly thought about like curing cancer with the vaccine. Yeah. I don't know. Just I had I got my head around that, right? So yeah, you and me both. I'd love a whole podcast on it. But I know you always ask our winners about whether they have any sort of secret sauce for innovation. And I don't doubt that you posed that question to Pete, right? Um, I did. You you know me too well, Amy. Um, here's his answer and uh, sneak preview. It goes back to our whole diversity and talent, and which I love. Yeah. Um, and then also he mentions just a little bit about what winning the R and D one hundred award meant to to him and their their staff. To be honest, I'm not sure that you know we or I have a secret sauce, but if there is a key ingredient is people right i mean you can only achieve this if you have a unique like if you have a unique maybe i should stop there and say that sentence again right you can only achieve this if you have a unique mix of talents and expertise and and passion as i mentioned and and it needs to be embedded in a culture that is purpose driven and supportive of risk taking to drive innovation and and i strongly believe that if you have good people around you the main thing you should do is just let them get on and do what they do really really well um it's also about focus and and aiming to be outstandingly good at what you do which in our case is biosimulation and and bring in experts from other areas where you need it well it's obviously a great honor for our team and and sitara as a whole and also i suppose a recognition of the crucial role of biosimulation in drug and vaccine developments and we've also been selected as finalists of the uh, the 2022 um, edison awards in the COVID 19 innovation category now our scientists do not typically seek the limelight and and they really you know derive their motivation from impacting patient lives but of course we are we're very proud to get so much uh, you know credit for our work and then one last thing, Amy. What's up, Paul? Pete stressed that their work in vaccines, he really you know, wanted me to get this message out. It's, it's actually just one example of how they use biosimulation across drug discovery and development. Um, they have some other pretty extraordinary stories in areas like oncology, Alzheimer's disease, um, gene therapy for rare diseases, and, and things like that. Oh, fascinating. Hey. You just said drug discovery and development. So I'm like, we should hook Pete up with our drug discovery and development editorial team. <laughs> that is already happening, Amy. Ah, it's like you and I have the hive mind going, Paul. <laughs> is, wait, is that a, 
I'm trying to think. Is that a Star Trek reference? <laughs> uh, okay, either way, I'm hoping for your sake that that is not the case, my friend. You do not want to be inside this mind at all. <laughs> oh, I don't know, Paul. I think I've known you long enough that it's it's fine. Uh, you blow my mind sometimes too. <laughs> all right, all right. That that's fair enough. Well, this is uh, this is always fun chatting with you about this kind of stuff and and learning a little new more, a, a little oh. new more, a little more about new technology. I I'm back to not not well speaking today. <laughs> well, you're in, you, you're in just a little bit of pre summer vacation mode but hey maybe that's what it is you pulled this off you really did so it's you know it's uh, every time we do this I just walk away thinking what great minds you know it's it's fascinating stuff it's really fun it's always fun to talk to you too appreciate it well as we always like to to point out dear listeners if you are a past R&D 100 award winner with an interesting development story to talk about please do get in touch with us you can email us the details at research development, all one word, at wtwhmedia.com. We are constantly on the lookout for topics for future R&D 100 podcast episodes, whether that was, you know, a winner in 2021 or from decades ago that's still doing amazing things in the world or, or you know, in, in the next few months, if you're a 2022 winner, let's, let's talk about that too. Yeah, absolutely. And hey, it gives Paul and I a chance to talk to one another. <laughs> That's true. It's very hey, selfish, really. Yeah, it's all about us, right? I mean, to date it has been. Oh, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and make sure, listeners, to just subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter. Uh, that's at eeworld underscore Amy, A-I-M-E-E, and at W-T-W-H underscore Paul Heaney. That's P-A-U-L-H-E-N-E-Y. Amy, today was fun, as always. And uh, hey, let's do this again real soon. At let's, and I'm sure we will. <laughs> well, until next time, this is Paul Heaney here. And Amy Kelnoskis across the continent here. <laughs> Signing off. Thanks so much for listening. 